The most important technology in your life right now is money. It's true, there's evidence that Instagram makes teen girls depressed, that Twitter makes us more negative and polarized, and, and nuclear weapons, you know, they threaten civilization itself. But none of these technologies can do what money can. You could say it's easier for a busload of angry Trump supporters to enter the headquarters of Google uninvited than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Money is a power that can prevent us from seeing and experiencing God. So we need to talk about it. We need to understand it. We need to use money well. I'm Andrew Noble. This is WWJT. It's a good intro. I like it. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I, I liked it too. I liked the uh, the Trump Trump supporters, you know, because like the Jesus' statement about like the eye of a needle and a camel, like we just don't know that, what that means. So I thought that was good. I thought that was good. So so Joel, money is technology, right? You agree with that? Defend yeah, it. Yeah, I think that's, um, it's, it's one of the things where it's like people recently have reduced technology's scope to just like apps and social media or like computers, but not realizing that like technology actually goes back to like the invention of writing or the invention of currency. These are all things that we as a society invented or developed to do things in a more efficient way. Um, and as we've mentioned in previous pods with some trade-offs attached. Yeah, totally. So I think money is one of the, the best ways to think about uh, Christianity and technology. It's it, because there's so much biblical scripture on it. And therefore, we can learn a lot about our approach to it. The difference between, well, it's not wrong to have money, but there are some trade-offs. It's wrong to love money, to love money more than God. You can't serve both God and money. So, so we have these, these very helpful texts that speak to money that, that then we can learn and apply that even broader um, applications of more technologies. So we're going to, in this pod, talk about a whole bunch of different things. We'll see where it goes. Maybe we'll touch on the recession, the, the history of things. Maybe we'll get into cryptocurrency a bit. Maybe we'll get into tithing and make us all a little bit uncomfortable about, uh, should we be giving more? Should we be more generous? You know, should we be reading Second Corinthians 9 and thinking through this generous approach to our, our finances? Who, who knows where we'll end up? But for now, Joel, can you help us understand, as the technology expert in the room, um, the history of money? How, how do we understand how it's changed over time? Okay, yeah, I'll, I'll try and, you know, keep it to the to highlights. But typically, you know, in Bible times, you would trade, you know, livestock um, like cows for grain. You know, you'd be trading these hard-to-move physical objects and barter, and that's how trade was done. <clears throat> and then at some and point... even like Genesis 4, you have those technologies coming up that you have, you know... Sorry to cut you off. No, no, yeah, jump in there. Oh, where is it? Where is it? It was right here in front of me. Oh, yeah. So, so Genesis 4, you have verse 20, the lineage of Cain. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. And then verse 21, his brother's name was Judah, Jubal, and he was the father of all who play stringed instruments. And then Zilhal is the son who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. And so you have, you know, the foundation of technology is in Cain's lineage in Genesis 4 and its material goods. Yeah. Yeah. And I think at some point, you know, in the New Testament, you, you see they're living in this Roman Empire where instead of bartering goods, 
we've moved to what they call um, commodity money, where the shekels of silver were actually, they had intrinsic value, right? There's value because it was difficult to get silver and gold out of the earth. Um, so if I gave you 30 shekels of silver, like you knew it was actually worth something. So that's the uh, biblical way. So just like when I was all hyped up with Ron Paul back in uh, 2008, you didn't know this about me, but I was really <laughs> into John, uh, not John Paul, Ron Paul. And, you know, he was all about the gold standard. And I was like, you know, as soon as I get money, I got to get gold because, because that's actually valuable, right? And you can hear me kind of a little bit of sarcasm here because we have moved on as a society beyond that approach to money. There, there's not just intrinsic value to the money itself. There's a different way of approaching it. Yeah, yeah. We moved even past representative money. Um, but before I jump into that, I want to note that we actually moved from silver probably when Britain actually moved to the gold standard. So a lot of people actually moved from silver to gold. And then because, you know, Britain was one of these vast empires, all of Britain's colonies use gold. And that actually made, there's like this network effect of like, hey, if you're using gold, it's actually easier because you don't have to convert from silver to gold to trade with British colonies. So everyone started using gold as kind of, or the gold standard, uh, which was Britain led as like the world currency. So now we have these things of like the, the world currency or the premier currency that everyone holds. Um, you know, fast forward through the world wars, there was like the Bretton Woods Accords where they met in the U.S. and said, how do we get our country back on, our countries back on track? We're in this great depression. And we moved to the U.S. dollar standard where it was, you know, a representative currency where they had these gold notes. And each of these gold notes represented gold that was like stored in Fort Knox. Um and it was good, but I think it, that did actually lead to the Great Depression because now it was fixed and you couldn't really print money. So Ron uh, Paul was right. This was this was <laughs> the way to do it. It was the way to do it back then. Maybe it is, some would argue, the way to do it now. Yeah, yeah. Um, some, some people will advocate for sure. But my money doesn't represent gold now. Yeah, so in 1971, Richard Nixon moved off the gold standard. And I think, you know, the U.S. was looking for U.S. interests and they were faced with a tough time and they said hey we're gonna you know we're gonna start printing money and the money is only worth something i think this is when like the u.s moved to fiat money because the government said it was so you're not really trusting gold you're trusting the government um, which comes with trade-offs because you know if the government starts making decisions you don't agree with and hyperinflating your currency, then everything you hold in that, in that currency could become, you know, undervalued or devalued, um, which, you know, we're going through a lot of inflation right now, post-COVID, um, with the supply chains and everything. And, and that is happening to a lot of people right now, um, where their assets are becoming devalued. So you said trust. I think that's an essential aspect of it in this way of approaching money now that with a fiat currency your your terminology you'd understand it better than me but you need trust for it to work and when you lack trust like 2009 all of a sudden we go through this financial crisis then that's where people start to get more skeptical they don't trust the government you know, I and and obviously, if the government just owns the currency, they just print their own money. People have concerns about that because it devalues things, um, and that's probably where we're seeing the rise of 
different technologies like Bitcoin, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's that's the interesting thing is that the great financial crisis, GFC, I think people like refer to it as, was only about 15 years ago, you know, 2007, 2008. And after that, the economic policy moved towards quantitative easing, where the Fed would purchase this debt and then actually inject money into the money supply. So it's only for the last 15 years that the Fed is really like printing money. I think they moved from, what was it like, around 600 billion in 2010 um, to I think it's like 4 trillion today. Um, so oh. they've really been kind of inflating currency. And this is where Bitcoin actually around the same time in 2008, the famous name is Satoshi Nakamoto, which is a person that actually no one actually knows who he is. It might be a moniker. He might not actually exist. It might have been like a group of people behind that name. But they would post things on this forum and say like, you know, we're trusting the government right now, but that's a centralized source that could fail us. And it's failed other countries before. So we want to move to this decentralized system where um, this digital coin is not necessarily based on government trust, but an agreement between two people based on a fixed supply. Again, it's like a fixed digital supply. There's a clear ledger that everyone can see where no one can inflate it. It's like there's a fixed amount of coins out there. So that's what makes it unique. It's almost like we're going back in time with Bitcoin then, you're almost saying, because now all of a sudden no government, no single gr no single person can just make more uh, Bitcoin. Or, I mean, there's all these versions of Bitcoin. There's the Bitcoin. And then I remember I was uh, in sales and I met a company through that, that was Bitcoin Cash. And I had to do the research and find out, oh, this is different. This is like a branch off. And, and there's a whole complexity just related to that. But at the end of the day, there's finite digital assets with Bitcoin. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's what makes exactly. it pretty unique. But yeah. but it's it's all over the place. I feel like when I think of Bitcoin, I think of investing with a super wild outcome. Like it's dropped, it's 50% down like in the last six months or something ridiculous like that, right? So it's just a very wild way of gambling. Is that is that a good understanding of Bitcoin? I think I think that's a popular understanding for sure. And it's like it's interesting you mentioned there's like, yeah, there's Bitcoin, and then they did something where they forked it. And they became Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin Original. And then people started making alternative coins or altcoins as they're called. Probably the most popular is Ethereum. But all of this kind of comes back to Bitcoin had, it was basically math, right? And it's like, hey, you know, there's a fixed amount of coins. We actually mint these coins from now until I think it's like 2140 at a fixed rate. Um, so we cannot like increase the supply. and there were some problems with it where it's like transactions would take like an hour. So someone said, okay, like what if we like optimize this math where it's like, we want transactions to happen within five minutes and then, okay, we'll make this alternative coin. It's adopting most of the same code. We've just like tweaked it. And now we have Ethereum. And then now people are saying, okay, like Ethereum is really good, but it was doing this whole thing. And maybe we'll dive into it. Like um, proof, proof of work where it's like, there's a, it's what it's called crypto. Cause there's like a, cryptographic equation and to make the transfer happen a computer solves the equation and validates the transaction and money sent between two people so basically 
you're trusting that the system works, but because the system is open to anybody to look at it, you, everybody is like, yeah, we can trust this system. And that's, that's where the trust comes in still, but yeah. it's just a far more obvious system than the government's way of manipulating currency though the governments hopefully are trying to be transparent some are more than others but yeah. okay so i so i'm following so we have we have bitcoin but basically all you've said to me is that it has this system where you can trust it so that you shouldn't be ripped off in the same way i mean someone could still steal your password or there could still be like they could steal your wallet right um because there's bitcoin wallets and stuff but why why would christians use it what good is it yeah, so like all the, people started making these alternative coins to really focus more on utility. Like you said, Bitcoin is known, and a lot of people use it as a store of wealth. And it's just like speculating. It's like just like speculating on retail, any other asset. You can buy a house to flip it, or you can actually buy a house to use it and like live in it and rest, you know, and grow a family. So the same thing with cryptocurrency, it's like you can buy Bitcoin as speculation but it actually like takes longer to send money or you can use a currency like Ethereum and send money back home as a remittance. So there's a large population of workers who have moved from um, lower standing economic countries abroad to make a better life for their families. And what they do is they send money back home um, to provide for their families. It's it's quite popular in India. A lot of and that's what remittance is, is this sending money like, so like I worked at a grocery store growing up, we had Western Union. Is that like a way, that's a way of sending money, but Western Union charges you. Exactly. And that's, that's really like the advantages, like with the technology today, you can send a remittance without Western Union. Back in the day, you needed a middleman. You needed a person you could trust. Again, it's all back to trust here and back in your home country, which could say, yes, I received the money. I'm going to call over and I'm going to give you the money from this location. But now cryptocurrency, we can see this public ledger. It's all very transparent. We don't need that middle person. And you can send money back home without a fee. You know, and I think I was like looking, it was like five dollars per transaction plus one percent commission. So with like uh with the traditional ways of sending money. Yeah, with Western Union and other kind of like um even banks like they that. charge you. Yeah. yeah, even banks. Actually, it was like it's really interesting, you know, um, I sold a house I owned and I had to wait 10 days for the money to actually show up in my account. And I was asking the bank, like, what's going on? Like, why is this taking 10, 10 days? And they, they had to validate it and do all these things. And this is actually called the float period. And this is something that doesn't exist in cryptocurrency. It's like, if you're using a, you know, altcoin like Ethereum, within five minutes, you'd get that transaction. You don't need this middleman who's actually probably making money off of that float 10 days making interest like these banks are doing. So it's it's definitely in some ways going to challenge status quo for a lot of what we've accepted as normal uh, when handing, handling currency. Okay. So it might increase, might, maybe people will use it more. It has this risky behavior to it. So you, you got to be careful because of the biblical teaching on gambling. If you're thinking about doing that, there's, there's a lot of different ways to think about wealth from a biblical point of view. And maybe that's what we can transition to now. Um, I think if you go into some of these communities that are all about Bitcoin, one of the desires is to 
make money. Is that fair? Like they, yeah, that's why yeah, they yeah. want other people to use Bitcoin because the more people who use it, the more money that they make because they got in Bitcoin earlier than everybody else, right? Yeah, it's like any speculative bubble, right? It became a bubble because everyone's like, Bitcoin only goes up. So everyone starts like piling in until that bubble kind of pops. Um, yeah. So yeah, it was an asset, asset bubble, kind of just like houses. Um, but it's almost because it's faster, it can be more accelerated. You know, like it went from, I think back in maybe 2012, I was looking at it for the first time. It was like $13 a coin. And then at its peak, it was like $69,000. Um, so yeah, 10, 15 years. And I think what money does uniquely is it gives you a sense of security. It gives you a sense of, you know, I can solve problems in my life with this one thing. Um, so in, in the Psalms, you have the repeated refrain of God is my refuge. He's my rock. He's my 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 safe place, right? And I think with the allure of money is that it can be the thing that keeps me safe. You know, there's a quote by some famous person, I forget who, and they're like, you know, money doesn't solve all problems, but it solves a lot of them, yeah. right? And and I think there is a reality that, you know, we're, we're a more wealthy society than we used to be by, by any measure. You can just look at that objectively. Wealth has increased. People are, are living alongside the increase of technology, living far more, um, far easier lives compared to before. I mean, there's different ways to think about ease, but at the end of the day, we are kind of satisfied with money. Um, people, people are drawn to it. And I think that's where Jesus's challenge, even back in the, in his time was about this desire for money and desire for money to be your security. And so when someone's like, yeah, I follow all the 10 commandments, Jesus is like, mm, sell all your possessions and give it to the poor. And are we willing to do that? Right. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's a good challenge. I think honestly, for people in tech, it might even be more relevant because because of the returns a lot of these companies are having in the stock market like tech companies and they don't really have much fixed costs because they're not selling like a physical good they're selling a software that improves your life so they have really high margins they're able to pay their employees higher and then attract the best talent and now with pandemic it's not even like region locked anymore. It's like, okay, we're just going to like hire people globally. So people in the tech industry are like getting paid a lot. Uh, I think that's the truth. And like you said, with more money, it does solve a lot of problems, but there's this like very easy problem where you can start to view it as like, okay, I'm safe. I'm secure. And you start trusting the money and it like starts becoming an idol. So I think like, yeah, definitely for people who start to earn more, it almost like you'd think it becomes easier. Um, but like for the rich man to go through the needle, it can, it can be actually harder. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Alistair Roberts, he, he has a great podcast. Um, for two years, he, he just spent seven or eight hours a day studying the Bible and then producing a podcast, just recapping the entirety of the Bible. Um, and I'll just play a clip from him when he's going through Matthew 19. 
As this rich young man leaves, Jesus expresses once again the danger of riches, those things that weigh us down, that tie us to something that prevents us from serving and following our true master. You cannot serve both God and mammon. If you find yourself devoted to riches, you will find yourself unable to follow Christ as he calls you to. This makes us uncomfortable, and it really should. We want to be assured that Christ would never ask such a thing of us. Now, Christ does not ask this more generally. However, if he did, we would have to submit. Wealth is a power that can prevent us from entering the kingdom, and Jesus teaches this in no uncertain terms. Wealth is something that can master us, and we, living very prosperous lives for the most part, should be very fearful. It's something that we can become enthralled by. It's something that can dictate the course of our lives, our values, our commitments. Even if we are poor, this can be something that drives our concern. That is something that prevents us from throwing ourselves wholeheartedly into the service of our Saviour. So when we can think about other biblical passages as well, you know, where Paul says in 1 Timothy, the love of money is the problem. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Do you think with money also comes many griefs? Like, do we, do we actually believe that verse? Because we're like, I mean, it's nice to have lots of money. But I think, I think just as you get a bigger house and then all of a sudden you have to take care of a bigger house, so too with money, any type of possession, any type of technology, once you own it, once you identify with it, then that is part of what you need to take care of. For those people investing in the stock market and getting very active there, the more you dabble in that, the more you need to tend it, care it like a, like a garden. But if the garden becomes too big, all of a sudden it becomes unmanageable and you're filled with grief about all the different speculation, all the different ways that it can overrun you. So as much as I think I agree, it's difficult um, or it's, it's e as much as I agree, it's easy with money. There's also some difficulties that come with a lot of money too. Yeah. More money, more problems, right? Notorious B.I.G. That's right. I mean, it wouldn't be a podcast if we didn't quote some uh, notorious B.I.G. So <laughs> Well, the, the one th passage from Jesus that I find incredibly fascinating is in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I think most of us think about it the other way around. We correct our heart first, and then that will change our habits, and it will change the way in which we deal with money or technology even, more generally. But what Jesus says is where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That whatever you do with your money is an indication of where your heart is at. And in fact, sometimes you can make a decision with your money, even when your heart's not in the right place. You can have mixed motives. You can say, you know, I'm part of this church community where everybody's really generous with their money. Fine. 
I'll be generous with my money too. And and that way, I'm going to be more generous than everybody else in my church. And that's going to make me look good. And you could have mixed motives even, but at least you'd be doing the right thing with your treasure. And perhaps it would pull your heart with it along the way. And I think we should think about money that way, that that even when it's difficult, even if you don't feel like fully, you know, committed to it, because you you have these these differences of opinion, you need to uncomfortably give. Yeah, no, I, I really agree with that. And I think that's a good insight where it's like, <clears throat> you know, with money becoming an idol, it's like one of the best ways to unseat that idol is to literally physically take it and give it away, right? Rather than putting it in this cherished place of your heart. So I think like that's a, a practical example that really from a lot of people I've talked to helps them, you know, prevent that from taking a, a, a seated role in their heart. Um, and I think it's also interesting because like it brings up this point of like you need to be able as like an individual or a company to make those decisions about your money um, of your own will, right? Like you said, and there are some companies, for example, um, who are starting, there's a lot of ways to, you know, grow a company. One of the more recent ways is to take monies from venture capitalists. But what ends up happening is they now have a say in how you spend that money. Mm -hmm. And it's not only you that has the uh, autonomy to make those decisions, but you have to consider their interest and what they want, um, which also like highlights how important it is you know, that we probably need to focus on like Christian VCs who have maybe like an alignment on the mission if you're starting a company for like a, a Christian purpose. So, yeah. Yeah. The way that you get your money as an organization makes a huge impact on the product. And we don't necessarily see that. We see money as kind of this neutral thing that as long as we get, it's it's going to be positive. But where it comes from, the expectations that come with that are huge. Um, this podcast has been brought to you by Compassion. <laughs> if you'd like to sponsor children across the world who are struggling with their daily needs, uh, in, invest your money in Compassion, a compassionate way to give money to children directly through a ministry that centers around Christ and centers around the church. Now, now I'm, I'm kind of tongue-in-cheek doing this ad right now. Compassion does not sponsor this. I would love for people to give more money to Compassion. Did you think that was real, Joel? Yeah, and the first thing I was like, oh, what happened? I didn't know. <laughs> we got an agreement with Compassion all of a sudden. No, but you and I, we just talked the other day about like, yeah. we should not be looking at, at ads. It's funny, like you start a podcast and then you get all this spam email of like, do you want to monetize your podcast? And like, my name's like Adrian, I'd love to meet with you to talk about like monetizing your whatever. And you can sign right. up and we'll, we'll get you aver we'll get you uh, advertisers that want to post on your pod. And, and it's just an interesting dilemma for anybody who's tied down to, to their investors, right? What's, yeah. what's that changing your product? Um, I think we really need to think about that. Even churches need to think about that. Sometimes churches, and Jesus spoke about this too, where where some people, they treat those with money better than those who don't. Oh, yeah. Right? And so pastors, they need to be guard their own hearts against, oh, these three families, they fund like 25, 40% of the church. That's not uncommon in some churches to be heavily supported by a small group of families. And then if they leave... They have some theological problems with what you're saying. Hey, don't 
pastor, you sound a little too woke. And you're like all nervous that you're getting grouped into this camp called woke. And you're like, okay, I better, I better, you know, even though I agree with what I said, I don't want this wealthy family to be against me. And this is the allure of wealth and the allure of wealth, even in churches is it's a very dangerous thing. Wow. Yeah. That's actually really interesting. I, I, like I knew that happens in churches, but I hadn't made the analogy to like pastors being like, oh, these are, you know, my principal investors in my company. I need to make sure they're happy. Right. And that same incentive alignment plays out where it's like, you start focusing and worrying on the money rather than focusing on the mission. Right. And like maybe even compromising your vision and mission and stuff like that. So I think that same, yeah, paradox exists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, if I were to do another ad roll, I'd, I'd do it for your local church because I, I do think, here's what I find, and, I, and I've heard pastors talk about this. If they want to raise money, you know what, how they have to do it? They have to talk about things that they're doing instead of their own salary, right? But biblically, just straight up from the text, Paul says, those who labor in teaching and preaching are worthy of honor. They should be paid. And we need to be far more willing as Christians to give to our local church. Now, we also need to be willing to hold our church accountable for how they spend their money. I'm not, I'm not excluding that and how pastors spend um, the money of the church or as the, the staff of the church spend the money. Uh, that needs to be our concern as well. Christians are not just required to blindly give to the church, but I think you can draw implications from 1 Corinthians 5 and from the examples in Acts of how they brought decisions to the church more broadly, that though I believe in elder rule, I believe the, the general congregation, the, the, the individual members of a church ought to ask questions about where the money is spent. They ought to ask questions about um, how much of the money is spent to care for the poor. For example, we know Paul, in his mission, he was always raising money for the poor in Jerusalem. It was It's like filled in Paul's letters. You just can't get away from it. He, he cared about it so much. And, and when he goes to the other apostles about his ministry to preach to the Gentiles, the other apostles, you can read this in Galatians 3, they're like, hey, you can go preach to... Um, Sorry, you can go preach to the Gentiles, but if you do, just make sure you remember the poor. Make sure you care for the poor. And that's a, an essential aspect of what it means to be the, the church, is to have this love of neighbor um, value and this love of the poor specifically um, of our neighbors. And so, so, you know, I'm not just saying just blindly give to your church, but I am saying we need to be more willing than we are to give to our church. We need to be more willing than we are to, to think about how to care for our poor and to do it as a community, as a church. And the local church is uniquely positioned to do that, as well as the the connection of churches in a community. Like I love Ray of Hope uh, here in Kitchener-Waterloo. It's just a combination of Christian churches got together and they're like, let's care for the poor. But 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 essentially, I'm just trying to introduce this concept of giving to your church um, because I'm not paid by a church right now. But I, uh, um, so I, I feel like since I'm the ministry guy, I could feel like I have some bias here. Um, I'm just concerned about churches who are really struggling for cash right now um, to do good things. Yeah, actually, you know, there's some an interesting tangent I want to kind of surface. Um, for anyone who's like a Christian techpreneur, right? You're starting a company like, um, you know, let's talk about like Tidely, for example. Um, what salaries are you paying 
your engineers, right? And, and are you paying them the same as Silicon Valley or is that too much? And like in the church, we have the same sort of perspective of like, oh, we don't really need to pay our employees that much. Like, let's like save more money for, you know, the, the purpose or the mission. But it comes with maybe this unforeseen drawback where it's like, you may not get the best talent, right? Because people are like, well, why would I go work for this company where I can go work for Google and, you know, make all this money, right? Or and the pastor is just trying to ca take care of the family and, you know, and all those kinds of things too, right? So Joel, thinking about this in another direction, you're probably familiar with the parable of the talents, right? Yeah, I actually, I love that one. <laughs> It's it is it is every tech person's favorite parable. I mean, there's other parables where it's like, eh, but that one. I mean, but it is it is a powerful one. It speaks to this individual. He says, "Master, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you had not sown. I was afraid, and so I went out and I hid your gold in the ground." Right? It's it's this person who's actually afraid of God, afraid of the master, and therefore doesn't want the punishment, and then ends up not doing what he should with it in terms of at least at minimum, put it in a bank account to collect interest, you know, which actually raises a whole other question about interest. But um, I like what Alistair Roberts says about this passage as well. Let me just play it super quick. Yeah. He sees his master as a hard man, a man who is more concerned with judgment, not a generous master, a master who wants to get whatever he can. A master who's concerned with condemnation, a master who's concerned with penny pinching and all these sorts of things, a miserly master. While the faithful servants ventured and took risks on the basis of a belief in their master that he was someone who was a good master who would entrust responsibility to those who were faithful, the unfaithful servant, on account of his false perception of his master, did not venture anything. He did not put the money to use as a faithful steward, and so it's taken from him and given to someone who will make use of it. The wealth entrusted to the sterile service of the unfaithful servant is handed over to the most fruitful and faithful servant. So I think, I think we should, you know, clarify our motivation that our motivation to give comes from a God who gives and that we should see our God as a generous God who, who didn't need to create us, but did it out of his generosity and love. And so to we receive things um, like the parable in, in Matthew 20, uh, the, the people in the vineyard, the tenants, they are entrusted with the vineyard. They are entrusted with the master's riches and they need to do good with it. And doing good with it does not mean keeping it for yourself, but to use it for the master's purposes, not your own. That is really why I like this parable, because it's almost like um, an encouragement to go and do something productive with uh, your money, something beneficial for, you know, the kingdom ideally. And I think um, it's a really good direction where it's like, we look at currency as a tool, right? It's a technology. And it's like, how do we use that technology well is to like understand the financial systems as an entrepreneur, a tech entrepreneur, it's like understand how you can get money from the capital markets to build a business, right? So all of those things, I think like we definitely should uh, take initiative to understand, to learn, to think about how to maybe do it things in a different way, where now we're like creating all these companies that can affect how currency or money is sent. Um, and yeah, like for example, 
you know, should a company use interest or an individual use interest, I think is like a good um, natural question as part of learning, like, yeah, banks use interest as part of their business model. Um, I think we're used to saying in the passage, Jesus said, like, you should have just like put it in the market and gained interest, but there's other verses where Jews don't take interest, right? Like clarify that right. for me, sorry. Right. So, yeah, I mean, there's been different perspectives on, on this throughout church history, but at the end of the day, you have the community that God created Israel that was going into the promised land and God gave them lots of instruction on how to experience shalom, peace, uh, a sense of true prosperity. And that was going to be experienced by a care for the poor, for the widow, for the foreigner. It had this compassionate element to it that meant that, for example, bringing a sacrifice to the temple, there was a you could bring something different if you couldn't afford the more expensive goat. You could bring a bird. Like you, there was all these accommodations made throughout the law for those who are poor. And that's the fundamental principle behind don't charge interest because we ought to not exploit the poor, but help them gain in resources. Um, and therefore do not exploit the poor by charging interest on a loan. And even like, there are so many structures, the year of Jubilee, we could go into other aspects too. Like there were structures that ought to be followed. They weren't followed very well by Israel, but they ought to be followed in order to create this society that didn't have a lot of inequity. We see a ton of inequity in our day. So the question is, how do we bring these Old Testament texts for that specific nation state run by God into our society today? And this is kind of the question of our show. What would Jesus tech, right? How would Jesus use money if Jesus was living today? And, and, I, and how would Jesus use technology? Helpfully, Jesus was asked, hey, Jesus, what are we supposed to do with this denarius that has Caesar's face on it? This token um, that is good for us in the markets to buy things, but it's not really an Israel thing. And what does Jesus say? Whose face is on it? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God's what is God's. And I do think that that approach kind of represents my way of interacting with technology and interacting these two areas of, you know, the Christian world and the general world, that there is God is over top of everything, but he then creates these different spheres to be used in different ways. So God throughout scripture puts governments in place that can tax, and those can be run by secular leaders, whether Cyrus or in the New Testament and things like Romans 14, where you have these strong commands to obey the government. So you have those types of ways of interacting these two spheres of the church world and how we should use our finances, perhaps a lot more community-oriented and, and within our communities, we shouldn't charge interest. So if, I, if you need money, Joel, I shouldn't charge you interest. Yeah, no, I think- you're part honestly, of my Christian community. Yeah, that's like, if I could use that backing as like a foundational principle for why we should use like cryptocurrency. Again, it's like people who are sending those remittances are potentially from lower income um, status levels, right? So for them to then on top of that, be subject to these like high cost of transactions, I don't think like we can endorse that from the Christian perspective. We should be 
thinking about how to use technology to make it easier for these people to make it better for them right and when we think about jesus like you said what would jesus tech i think he was pretty clear about currency as a technology and you know how to use it of course typical jesus leaving it into in a in a parable leaving it up to us to kind of interpret it through the context um it can lead to some people misinterpreting it um, but i think it's good because it allows us to think through these hard questions mm -hmm. yeah because jesus in one instance he says sell all you have and give to the poor but he doesn't say that to everyone in one instance one person gives away half their money and jesus is like yep you got it like and it's like wait he only did half Come on, like, what's the standard here? And so we don't have that very clear, precise thing. And I think that's 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 okay because all of your money should be seen as God's money. All of your technology should be seen as God's technology. Joel, putting you on the spot, do you think you, you give enough money away? Are you generous enough? Um, I can always do more. I think it's like the easy, easy answer. Um, but I, I think I'm... I'm in a good rhythm of like continually challenging myself to be like, okay, like what else can I do? What are like some initiatives I can do? There's this whole, maybe we can put this in the show notes. There's a whole uh, thing called journey of giving where it talks about a lot of like um, Christian people in business and um, maybe a few even in technology and how they've like given away like 99% of their company, even a hundred percent of their company, right. For kingdom ministry. So um yeah there we'll definitely have to like do another pod with more details and get into more of that stuff well you gave me that book gospel patrons by uh by john reinhardt people whose generosity changed the world right is that is that what you're talking about or is that similar yeah yeah no i think yeah we like to your whole point on stewarding there's this like calling on us to be let's say gospel patrons is like one avenue um, and mm -hmm. you probably want to unpack that a little bit since we <laughs> dropped that in there. Yeah, no, we should. Well, it's just, there's a lot of people in, in the New Testament, especially like a lot of people think that early church grew primarily through the poor, but there was a lot of rich people as recorded in scripture that used their wealth for the kingdom. Like Jesus relied on it. Specifically, there is like three, four women who funded Jesus's ministry on earth. We have that passage in Luke. So you have multiple instances in scripture in the new testament where where rich people are used of god even i think about the gospel of luke would we have that today if it were not for a wealthy person funding it you know oh excellent theophilus uh luke begins probably a, a wealthy person greek that that said to to luke the author hey write this stuff down for me i need an orderly account and now we have the gospel of Luke today that has so many beautiful passages, more than any other gospel about caring for the poor. So it's it's just, we have these, these things today because rich people use their wealth for the kingdom of God. And that's a glorious thing. And that can give you a lot of joy. Yeah, that's awesome. So this has been WWJT trying to figure out what would Jesus tech and I think a great window to figure out how Jesus used tech is to look at how Jesus used money and how he taught about money and how his early followers, as recorded in the New Testament, taught on money. And so we should use tech. We should use money. We shouldn't fall in love with it, but we should use it well and be aware that 
money can act on us. Tech can act on us. That's why we need to be careful with it. I think that's one of the key things that we kind of talked about early on in this episode. And so it's almost like it's a principality. It's a power. Money and tech are like powers. Um, like Andy Crouch talks about the mana. It's different than money. It's like a power over you. And so we need to be wary of this power and be more filled by the power of the Holy Spirit than the power of money. Um, just to, just to close, I'm going to read some second Corinthians nine. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver. And, and this part is great. This part is great. Verse eight and God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all you need, you will abound in every good work. See, we have been given much. The richest person in the world who gave most generously is God, who emptied himself and gave himself up, becoming like us and died on the cross, becoming poor. That is who Jesus Christ is, so that we might be saved, so that we might become rich through his poverty. And so that's that's what we can we can give out of, not under compulsion or under obligation or under threat or misery, but rather out of love for God. Because this service that we perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is the overflowing in our hearts, out into our hands of thanks to God. And so that's what we should do. And we should, we should use money. We should use tech. We should also find rest, not in money, but in God. And, and we should glorify him through how we use money.